Well, good morning. If you have your uh, copy of the scripture, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Now, most of you or some of you know, I, I'm a teacher. That's my day job. That's what I, what I do during the week. And I've been a teacher for uh, going on 17 years, about 17, 18 years. And I've been a parent for about four or a little over 14 now. And one of the things that I've learned is this important lesson. And if you're not a parent yet, make sure you pay attention. Write this down. Don't make a promise to a child that you are not going to fulfill. Because... And parents, you're going to start nodding your head here in a second. As soon as you, the words come out of your mouth, your children are already inscribing them in stone. As soon as you say it, it is gospel truth. And those words have now become the law, and you're obligated to fulfill them. And if you want to see your child turn into a lawyer quicker than anything, don't fulfill that promise. Or forget that you made that promise because if, as soon as it's time for it to happen, they're going to come and they're going to be like, listen, on October 28th at 3.30 in the afternoon, you promised. There, there are dire consequences for anyone who's foolish enough to not fulfill a promise to a child. Now, in our passage today, we're going to look at Isaiah 7, uh, verses 10 through 25. Uh, we have an event in which God makes a promise to the king of Judah in regards to his protection and salvation. Now, thankfully, unlike me as a parent or a teacher, God always keeps his promises and never needs to be reminded to fulfill what he said. So let me give you some context for where, where we're going with this particular passage, and then we'll see how these events unfold. So in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 1, uh, we're told that Ahaz is the king of Judah. Now, he was the grandson of King Uzziah, who was the last great king of the kingdom of Judah. Um, he had recently died. Um, the last time I was up here, I, 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 talk, I spoke with you from uh, Isaiah chapter 6. That was the king who had just died in Isaiah 6. Um, and unlike King Uzziah or King Jotham, the king who came after Uzziah, Ahaz was a wicked king. In fact, he was so wicked that he actually offered his only, or one of his sons as a human sacrifice to one of the pagan gods. And because of his wickedness and idolatry, God began to use two other kingdoms, the kingdoms of Syria and the kingdom of uh, Israel, as a means of judgment to bring Ahaz back to him. Now this alliance between these two nations, uh, it, was, it was causing the hearts of the king and the people to shake as the trees of the forest, shake before the wind. That, that's what the scripture says. It was in this fearful environment, this atmosphere, that God sent Isaiah to Ahaz with a message that was intended to comfort him. Isaiah was instructed to tell Ahaz that no matter how bad it looked, there was nothing to fear. Even though these two nations had planned evil against Judah, they were nothing but smoldering stumps of firebrands. That phrase means that they were the leftover pieces of firewood. You know those, those chunks that you have in your fire pit when you're done? That's what these two kingdoms were in comparison to God. And within a relatively short period of time, these two kingdoms were no longer going to even exist. All that Ahaz and the people needed to do 
was to stand firm in their faith and to trust God to deal with their enemies. However, though, King Ahaz had decided that he was going to trust a human savior instead of trusting God. And in 2 Kings chapter 5, we read that Ahaz had sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, in order to get help from him. In essence, Isaiah's message of comfort and encouragement was falling on deaf ears. And so that's going to bring us to our first point. Point one is, God is merciful in our unfaithfulness. So let's read Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to read verses 10 through 13. It says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Now, as our passage tells us there, God again spoke to Ahaz through Isaiah wanting to give him an opportunity to let God, to trust him, to deal with the enemies. The king is instructed to ask God for a sign. And this wasn't any run-of-the-mill ordinary sign. It was almost as if God was giving Ahaz a blank check. The scripture tells us it can be as deep as Sheol or it can be as high as heaven. Anything you want to ask me, uh, Ahaz, I will do it for you as a sign. Whatever sign Ahaz needed in order to trust that what God was saying is true, he was going to make it happen. In his, God, in his mercy, condescended to Ahaz because he knew the weakness of Ahaz's faith. Uh, Matthew Henry wrote this. He said, he considers our frame and that living in a world of sense, we are apt to require sensible proofs. Now, in God's mercy... He, is all, he, he was offering a sign to Ahaz to demonstrate his faithfulness and the validity of his statements to Isaiah. Have you ever thought about how God has done the same for us? God's faithfulness is shown to us through the scriptures, in the scriptures. And instead of simply leaving us with the knowledge of our sin, God has revealed himself to us through the Bible. Psalm chapter 19 is a song about the glory of God's revelation to man. First, as general revelation found in the natural world around us, and then, as, then through special revelation, the revelation given from God so that his chosen people might be saved. Let me read part of it to you. Isaiah 19, 7 through 11 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them is great reward. Just as God offered a sign to Ahaz in order to save him, we are offered a sign in the scriptures. Let that sink in for a moment. The Bible that we have in our hands, or for some of you on the device that you're holding... 
uh, is a sign from God so that you might be saved. What a demonstration of God's mercy in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Sadly, though, we see that Ahaz rejected God's gracious offer for a sign. He tries to couch it in pious terms. He tries to make it look like he's being religious and following what God has already said. He says, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. I mean, all throughout the Bible, people, are, people asking for a sign are treated in a negative light, right? Like, I mean, we see that all the time. Jesus was constantly rebuking the Pharisees and other religious leaders for demanding a sign. It even says in Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now, the difference, though, the difference of what's happening here is that Ahaz wasn't asking for a sign. God was offering the sign to him, right? It wasn't as if Ahaz was saying, well, God's got to prove it to me. God was saying, I want to prove it to you. Ahaz rejected the sign because he had already made up his mind to rely on the Assyrians for his salvation. He was rejecting God in favor of a worldly savior. And notice how he also knew that if he was to trust God for his salvation, he would be beholden to God. God would now be the one calling the shots. If this sounds a bit ridiculous to you, keep in mind we often do the very same thing. Every time we rely on our own strength or we look to something other than God to save us, we're acting just like King Ahaz. It's a sad but true reality. We say this a lot around here. If you've been at Harvest Point for any amount of time, you've heard us say this. We must trust Christ as our only hope in life and in death. Trusting anything else will lead to our destruction. And that's what we see happening here. Ahaz's rejection of God leads to a very strong rebuke from Isaiah. There's also a very sad change in the language that Isaiah uses. In Isaiah 7.10, Ahaz is told to ask for a sign from the Lord your God. However, in Isaiah 7.13, Isaiah says, my God. Ahaz's rejection of God's offer has cut him off from salvation. And that, my friends, is a dreadful place to find yourself. But it doesn't have to be this way. There is hope found in Jesus Christ. Now that brings us to our second point. Point two is God is loving in our weakness. Now even though Ahaz had rejected God's merciful, merciful offer of a sign, we see God's loving nature because God gives him a sign anyway. And what a sign it was. Uh, pick up in verse 14. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. There are, there are several things that, to, to see here in this sign. First is the recipient of the sign. Who is the one receiving the sign? In verse 13, Isaiah is addressing the house of David. This sign wasn't just for the benefit of King Ahaz. This, it was for everyone. This was a sign of goodwill for the people of the nation. 
The second, the timing of the sign is important. Most of the time, when someone reads this particular passage, Isaiah, uh, Isaiah 7.14 specifically, they read it as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. Right? That's, why we're, that's why we're reading it today is in preparation for the Advent season. We're looking at this verse because we see it as a prophecy. However, the birth of the Messiah wasn't going to take place for several hundred years. Meaning that this particular sign was going to have a double meaning, a double fulfillment. So while most modern readers see this as just a prophecy pointing to Jesus, there was actually a promise in the sign for the kingdom of Judah. There was a promise for them there in that day. Remember, the great national crisis that Isaiah was concerned, that Ahaz was concerned with, was the impending invasion of Syria and Israel. That was a pretty big deal in his worldview. And it was such a concern that Ahaz was willing to become the servant of the king of Ahaz in order to be saved. But now pause and think about that sign, the sign that God would give. What was it? That a child would be born whose name would be Emmanuel. And there's something important in that name, especially this name, because it means God with us. Meaning, in the present fulfillment of the sign, what was going to happen there in Ahaz's day, God was reminding the people that he was with them, even though their faith was weak. He was showing them that their enemies would soon be put to an end. And despite their weakness and the failings of their leaders, God was still their God. It doesn't get any more encouraging than that. And when you're, when you're lacking hope, when, there's, when you feel as if there's no hope, there's no sense in going on, and you're reminded, God is with you. There is hope in that statement. Now, we're going to come back and we'll look at Isaiah 7.14 more in a moment. But for now, the third thing in this promise is the promise of the sign. Not only will a virgin conceive and give birth to a child named Emmanuel, but this child's life was going to set the time frame for their enemies, for Judah's enemies. The purpose of the sign was to strengthen Ahaz's faith. Ahaz, as we've already seen, Ahaz wasn't trusting God to save him from the invasion, even though God had promised that they were not to be feared. Because Ahaz's faith was weak, God was giving him that sign to show that his word was true. And even though he had rejected that sign, God was going to fulfill his promise. Isaiah, 15 through, uh, sorry, Isaiah 7, 15 through 16 specifically lays out when Syria and Israel will be destroyed. It says, before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. That was a phrase to indicate about a two-year period of time. The phrase was used to indicate that the boy would be a toddler. So about the time that this child is up walking and, and able to decide between good and evil, making good choices and bad choices, the events promised were going to take place. There was a solid time frame here. In two years, the enemies that Ahaz, that Ahaz was so terrified of would be gone. As God's children, we too have the promise that God is with us. Even in our weakness, we can hold on to the truth of Deuteronomy 31.6, which says, 
be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Does that promise resonate with you? Do you hold on to it even in the midst of your darkest days? This is the reality of Emmanuel. God is with us. And that brings us to our third point. God is just in our sinfulness. Picking up in verse 17, it says this. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. As encouraging as the statements that we've seen so far have been, there is a stark reality that we must face. And that is, God is just in our sinfulness. In Isaiah 6, we're told that God is holy, and not just holy, but holy, holy, holy. He is completely separate and removed from sin, and therefore, he can't be in the presence of sin. With this in mind... God brings judgment on sinful humans and is completely just in doing so. This is the declaration that Isaiah gives to Ahaz in Isaiah 7, 7, 17 through 25. It begins with Isaiah telling the king that the very thing that he turned to for his salvation is going to be the instrument that God is going to use for his judgment. Ahaz quickly, it's as if God says to Ahaz, If you want the king of Assyria so badly, this is what you want, fine, you can have it. Ahaz quickly discovers that this is not what he wanted at all. In very graphic detail in verses 18 through 25, Isaiah details the devastation and the destruction that would come upon Judah because of Ahaz's rejection of God's offer of salvation. The Lord brought judgment upon Ahaz through the Assyrians and the Egyptians, and the devastation was incredible. Isaiah 7, 21 and 22 tells us that a man will keep a cow and two sheep, and because there will be an abundance of milk, everyone will eat curds and honey. That doesn't sound so bad, right? You get to eat curds and honey? That sounds great. But the, here's the thing. There's an abundance of milk because there aren't enough people left alive to eat all of the milk that the cow is producing. 
That's the devastation and destruction that's going to come. We also see that the land that was once fruitful and produced a great deal would become nothing but briars and thorns. The briars and thorns would be so thick that people would not even come to that land for fear of the briars and the thorns. No work can be done there because of the barrenness and devastation. This is the outcome of sin. This is what happens when a person willfully rejects God's offer of salvation. Our sin is more devastating than we can possibly imagine. And as was the case here, our sin has a devastating effect on everyone around us. It wasn't every person in Judah that rejected God and aligned themselves with the king of, king of Assyria. That was Ahaz. It was Ahaz's decision to align himself with the king. But Ahaz's, Ahaz's sin had an impact on every man, woman, and child in Judah. The same was true when Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. His sin brought death and separation on every man, woman, and child since that time. And while your sin may not have an immediate effect on those around you, know that the repercussions will be felt through the generations. Now, is God just in doing this? Right? You, you may read this passage and it, it can seem that the punishment doesn't fit the crime. Some of you might even be thinking, Jonathan, I don't see what's the big deal. I don't understand this. All Ahaz did was align himself with another kingdom in order to protect himself. I would have done the same thing. If I was in Ahaz's place, I would have done the same thing. If you aren't sure why this is a big deal, it's likely that you either don't have an understa a good understanding of the ugliness of sin, you don't have a big view of God's holiness, or both. Ahaz's sin was awful because it was a rejection of God. Ultimately, instead of trusting God and following the command to trust him, Ahaz put himself in the place of God, thinking that he knew better. You and me, we do this every time we put our trust in something other than Jesus Christ. We do this more often than we realize. But we must understand that he is truly our only hope in life and in death. And actually, this punishment that was brought upon Judah is an act of justice on God's part. How? Well, God used the Assyrians as a means of discipline on the people of Judah. The kingdom of Judah was made of the Jewish people, God's chosen people. He was disciplining his people to draw them back to him. It was God's mercy and justice that brought the Assyrians. The same is true of us who are God's children. Proverbs chapter 3, 11 and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. We can have assurance that we are God's children when we are disciplined as a result of our sins. We're not talking about child abuse here, but a loving father doing parental discipline. God is just in doing this because as a holy God, he is separated from sin and cannot tolerate that sin. He's loving in doing this because 
as our father, he is dealing with our sin. Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, wrote, God punishes most when he does not punish. It's a dreadful thing to be punished by God, but it's even more dreadful when you are not punished by God. It'd be like if I left my children completely unsupervised, letting them do whatever they want and never offered any kind of discipline. That would not be loving on my part. That would be abuse. That would be neglect. Now, not wanting to leave on that point, let's go back to Isaiah 7, 14, and our final point, and our final point is this. God keeps his promises to his people. Now, all through the scripture, God is making promises. Since the, fall of, since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, God has promised his chosen people that he was going to save them. Now, time doesn't permit us to look at every single promise that's in the scripture, but I want to share some key promises with you that tie directly to the sign that God promised in Isaiah 7:14. The first promise we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Immediately after Adam and Eve had sinned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God gave them a promise of redemption. He was, he was talking to the snake, but he said it in, in so that Adam and Eve could hear it. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this promise is a little vague, it, it, but it was still a promise. An offspring of Adam and Eve would be, in the words of Matthew Henry, the deliverer of fallen man from the power of Satan. The redeemer of mankind would come through the seed of the woman. I can only imagine that every child that was born from that point on had high expectations. You think your parents put a lot of pressure on you? Imagine being born in this. Every child that was born could potentially be the Messiah. Could this, be, could this baby be the one that will deliver us from evil? Could my son be our savior? And yet children continued to be born and evil continued to exist. Had God forgotten his promise? Now we're going to fast forward for several hundred years to King David, the second king of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 through 16, God sends the prophet Nathan to David with a promise. That promise was that David's throne would be established forever. It says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made, for, made forever before me. Made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God takes the promise that he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis and he narrows the focus a bit. The picture starts to become a little clearer. The promised deliverer would be from the house and the line of King David. And just as God told David, when Solomon, David's son, sinned, and boy, did he sin. God punished him, but he never took his love away. God continued to remember the promise he had made, first to Eve and now to David. That brings us to our present scripture, Isaiah 7:14. The promise becomes even more clear. God himself would be the one to give the sign. A virgin would give birth to a son, and his name would be Emmanuel. And as we've already seen, that means God is with us. What a beautiful promise. But what does all of this mean? Remember, God keeps his promise. And that promise was fulfilled 
in Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And this is the angel appearing to Joseph in a dream, and he says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is how God kept his promise. He sent his only son, Jesus, to be the redeemer of his chosen people. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5 tells us why God kept this promise. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that they might receive adoption as sons. And this was the reason that Jesus left heaven, to redeem his people fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the promised redeemer of his people. Now, like Ahaz, each of us is given an opportunity to put our faith in God. He has given us a sign of his faithfulness through the scriptures. And he has fulfilled those promises made in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Born of a virgin, to save his people from their sins. So yes, like Ahaz, we are given the opportunity to trust Christ for our salvation. Unlike Ahaz, our answer needs to be yes. Let's pray. Father God, we thank